And so tonight's message is The Second Coming and Armageddon. That's what it's entitled, The Second Coming and Armageddon. And it has to do with uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. The next time we'll talk about the great judgment. But all we're going to deal with tonight is uh, verses 7 through 10, the second coming and Armageddon. Let's ask the Lord to enlighten our minds as we turn to the scriptures. Lord, you've written a word. It's a true word. And Father, it shall come to pass. As we look tonight, we look at prophecy, things that are happening in a micro way today. But Father, in one day, they'll come in a macro way, extensively, as extensively as the flood of Noah uh, took care and, and covered the entire earth. There's coming a day when judgment will come and everyone will be involved. All that are alive, Father, either caught up to heaven or victims, or I should even say perpetrators of Armageddon. So Lord, help us, we pray, to see that tonight from the scriptures. You've told us what will happen. Enlighten our minds, and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now let's start this by turning to 2 Peter chapter 3. And then we'll go to Revelation 20. 2 Peter 3, we've alluded to it a number of times, read it a few times. But um, the point that I want to make from 2 Peter 3 is that um, I believe if you're looking for a chronology of how things are going to happen at the end times, uh, this is the very best place to look. Uh, the book of Revelation, trying to read it from front to back and saying there's the chronology, but it's not. That's not the chronology. Revelation is cyclical, talks about the same things over and over again, adding things many times, uh, emphasizing different things at other times. We'll see that tonight. As we read the scriptures, I think that's what you'll come away with tonight. Is you'll get a very good view uh, of how it works in the book of Revelation. But here's the chronology. just want to basically read it to you, make a couple comments along the way. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And when he's talking about the holy prophets, he's actually talking about, uh, actually, the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, who spoke a lot about the things that we're talking about tonight. And, and uh, we saw that, I hope we saw that in our minor prophets series that we went through earlier. They will say, the scoffers, now the scoffers come in the last day, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by that means, the, uh, the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word, Okay, the word that caused the flood. By the same word uh, that, um, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, 
that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we would not be doing injustice to the Greek if we read it like this. It would be an over-translation, but it wouldn't be an injustice. It said, the Lord is slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. And then there's a textual difficulty there that says us, you know, but that's okay, you know. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, in holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We really see the purpose of prophecy. Prophecy doesn't exist to be fortune-telling. Prophecy exists uh, to exhort us towards holy living and looking to God and trusting in him. So this is the promise that we're waiting for. It's a new heavens and a new earth. The fire could be true fire, it could be uh, literal fire, it could be an actual burning. Whatever it is, it could just be symbolic of cleansing. Okay, so it can go either way, but um, we'll find out at the last day. I kind of lean towards cleansing myself, to tell you the truth. But um, whatever it is, we've got to have a new heavens and a new earth, and uh, it will come at the last day after the final judgment. So... There we go from 2 Peter 3. There is where we get our chronology. Very simple. And uh, the end is very simple. And so that's what we want to see. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 20. Just because there's a delay doesn't mean it's not going to happen. There was a delay in Noah's day. You know? We don't know how long that delay happened to be, but there was a delay. Uh, from the time that it was announced to the time that it was fulfilled. This world's not going to last forever. It is going to be remade. You know, the flood caused a remaking of the earth, but sin still remained. From this remaking, it'll be better than the beginning, and sin will be no more. Okay. Now we talk about Armageddon, the second coming, and Armageddon. And uh, we start in Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. You can start to use your outline now, because um, that was on your outline, and the rest of the passages 
on your outline, are on your outline too, or at least it's not an outline, but it's your list of scriptures. So Satan was bound so that he couldn't deceive the nations any longer. We see that in verse number three. He's released here so that he can deceive the nations before the Lord's return. And uh, there'll be a great rebellion, but this rebellion will not be successful. It's quashed by fire from heaven that consumes them. Now, with all that being said and done, as we look at it a little closer, the camp of the saints uh, and the beloved city ought to be seen as Christians. It's a prophetic way of saying the wicked rise up against the church, even to the point of persecution. Rise up against the church wherever the church happens to be. And so it is posit right up front. I don't believe Armageddon is a literal battle of assembled armies with missiles pointing at God or any other arms like that. And that's the way that it's almost always pictured in our modern society. Most lost people have heard of Armageddon. And whenever they think of Armageddon, they think of literal warfare. This is spiritual warfare. This is ungodly men who, who hate God. And guess who hates God? Everybody that's not in Christ hates God. Because that's what the Bible says. That um, the natural man is enmity against God. And so this is the final battle. And uh, this is the, the final end. And the assembled forces, how strong they are, how big the persecution is, is a matter of debate. But how great the deception is, is a matter of debate. We'll get into that in just a couple of moments here. But let's take a look at the parallel passage of this passage here. And I put these passages in order for you. Um, one of my favorite commentators uh, calls it Armageddon Part 1 and Armageddon Part 2. Uh, this is Armageddon Part 2 we just read. Uh, I wouldn't totally agree with that because I think we see Armageddon earlier too. But I do see the description of Armageddon Part 1 and Armageddon Part 2 as being a valid way of looking at things because I believe chapter 19 that we go to now is actually um, just a little more detail about what's happening here. And uh, we'll even deal with Gog and Magog as we go through this. So Revelation 19:11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he's called is the Word of God. There's some things you're going to see over and over again. That idea of blood, you know, warfare, blood, a horse, a coming. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2 language. And he'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And that's Isaiah 63 language. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And, and this is Gog and Magog language from Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel 39. 
and Gog and Magog was mentioned in Revelation chapter 7, or Revelation chapter 27 through 10. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. Uh, very much army language, but the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in the presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And that imagery does come from Ezekiel 38 and 39. God's enemies slain by the sword, their corpses consumed by the birds, and these birds are su had been summoned by God to the feast. And Ezekiel calls the army that's slain Gog and Magog, uh, the prince and the people, per se. And um, we don't need to try to figure out who Gog and Magog is. That becomes a a great debate in some circles, and they'd say Russia is, you know, and they try to find countries that fit this, that are going to attack modern day Israel. And no, that's really the wrong way to look at it. That's looking at the, the scriptures with a newspaper and trying to make it all fit together, you know. Uh, it's all the ungodly throughout all the world. They're like the sand of the sea, they're a huge contingent, and what unites them is their hatred for God. Fire comes down to destroy them, and you say, well, I thought a sword from the mouth of the Lord destroys them. Well, that's imagery. It's imagery here. It really matters not to, to try to talk of in that sort of a way. Ezekiel 39 imagery says this, I'll send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. But that's not knowing the Lord in a good way. That's knowing the Lord through his judgment. Ezekiel 38, 22. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him and will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstone, fire and sulfur. And throughout the book of Revelation, one of the things that we've seen are hailstones, earthquakes. These are given as judgments of God from the lost in the book of Revelation, and fire and sulfur connect with Revelation 2010 and also connect with uh, Revelation 19, verse 20. So don't expect Armageddon to be a literal battle of armies. They see the Lord coming on a white horse and they gather their nuclear weapons and such like that to try to stop him. That's, that's, that's not what it is. Okay, that's not really what it is at all. Instead, think of those who carry the figurative mark of the beast instead of the mark of God, aligning themselves with Satan against Christ and the church. And they're satanically deceived. You know? And we see, I'll, I'll mention it again in a moment here, but we see a great deal of satanic deception in our own day. And just, just think about it. 
you know, you don't, all you have to do is just uh, turn on the television, uh, go to a movie, uh, drive the streets of our cities. We see a great deal of satanic deception in our day. So the armies of the ungodly persecuting the saints under the direction of Satan. And chapter 19 and chapter 20 are the same battle. And we've seen this final battle before. We can call it Armageddon. We've seen it before. Look at 16 verse 15 in your paper. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. It's interesting, there's a difference when Christ is talking about um, 70 AD. I believe we can kind of pinpoint 70 AD from the things he says, especially in Luke 21 and such like that, and also in Matthew 24. But when we talk about the coming of the Lord and the end of all things, we don't have a timetable for that. And anyone that tells you that we do have a timetable for that is just plain wrong. There is no timetable. You can't figure it out from the scriptures. There's no secret code. There's no thing. We know he's coming. We don't know when he's coming, except that he's coming like a thief. And he himself said, you know, if you knew when the thief was going to come and break in and destroy, you'd have watched. Yeah. So this is what we're talking about. So really, verse 16, 16, and the place that they assembled in the Hebrew is called Armageddon which is the only place in Revelation where we read the word Armageddon. Now, what is Armageddon? If you really want a simple way to remember it, I think it's the flip side of the second coming. Trying to get those pictures of, of armies and warfare out of your mind. Um, movies that don't help us when it talks about Armageddon, you know, that, that's not helpful to us. Armageddon is the flip side of the second coming when Christ comes, it's our blessed hope. When Christ comes, it's the promised curse that comes upon the lost and their eternal doom. It's their physical death and the judgment that comes. So we've seen that picture throughout the book of Revelation, the blessing of Christ's coming and the horror of his coming. And let's read some verses for that. Chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then chapter 6, at the end of the seals, 6.12, because the seventh seal morphs into the trumpets. 6.12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. And here it is again. And everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who could stand? And then the book goes on. That's the end of all things. 
and the book goes on. That's the way Revelation is written. Chapter 14 is a great chapter talking about these very issues. We see three angels. We see Armageddon here, I believe, with the three angels. Starting in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those that dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And if you remember, we've said all along that Babylon symbolizes wicked society wherever it happens to be, which is everywhere, basically, everywhere. That's what Babylon is. We'll actually see, later we'll see uh, Babylon in, we won't tonight, but chapter 18, where it goes into great detail with Babylon's destruction and the mourning over it. And uh, verse 9. Another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, remember the mark is a sign of ownership, Satan or God, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur. So we're seeing these same symbols again and again. Wine, wine press, fire, sulfur, and the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. We saw that with Babylon. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Well, we go down to verse 14 of chapter 14. Then I looked, and what we have here is an interesting thing. There's, there's two symbols here, two reapings. The reaping of the saved and the reaping of the lost. Then I looked and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who said on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe, so he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The second coming, and uh, gathering the elect from the north, south, east, and west. But here's a picture of Armageddon. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. He too had a sharp sickle. And another angel out from the altar, the angel who had authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And that's another sign of when the Lord's return will happen. When wickedness has finally run its full course. It's ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Uh, Isaiah 63 again. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, 
for 1600 stadia. And uh, obviously, that's not to be taken literally like that. It's the mass of destruction that takes place. There's none that remain. There's none that remain. So, I believe it's another way of showing us the blessedness of the saints at the Lord's return and the Armageddon of those who war against God and are defeated by the Lamb. Armageddon is the raging host of the lost fighting against Christ and his church, even to the point of persecution, and finally being destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Now, let me try to answer a question as best as I can. How extensive does this persecution have to be before the Lord can return? Interesting question. How extensive does it have to be? And I think we need to be careful as we ask that question. I'm the one that asked it. But uh, we need to be careful as we ask that question. So we don't think that the Lord's coming must necessarily be far away because things aren't that bad yet. Not that bad yet probably depends, number one, on where you happen to live. And uh, it, number two, depends on the way that things ought to be. And even in our own country, we're a long way from where things ought to be. So I believe we see satanic deception in the world right now, enough to have to say nothing hinders the return of the Lord very, very soon. We're told in 23 that Satan was bound so he could no longer deceive the nations, but Satan would be loosed for a little season. We're told in verse 7 of chapter 20 that Satan is loosed and once again allowed to deceive the nations. And um, here in the West, just think about what we've seen happen in the last few years. We've seen intelligent and highly educated people believing some of the stupidest things that you can imagine. And I won't even tell you what they are. I think you can figure them out if you just listen to what they're trying to say and uh, just make no sense at all. Things that would be laughable things just a generation ago, except they're not funny. They're, they're very destructive. And it seems to me that Satan, who has been allowed to blind men's eyes uh, to see things, he's been allowed to do that. And if sanity ruled People would never believe some of the things that they perpetrate today. So that's what we have going on in Western civilization. And of course, there's different deceptions in different parts of the world. In Muslim lands, people are blinded by false religion. In the Far East, we have the Eastern religions that are blinding people's minds and hearts. And so these deceptions are strong enough that uh, can we say the Lord's at hand? I don't think we should even think that way. I don't think that's the best way to think here. Different deceptions have ruled at different times and different places. And we're not told to look for the deceptions for the coming of the Lord. We're not told to look for the strength of the deceptions for the coming of the Lord. We're told to look for the coming of the Lord. And John talks about, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. So just to wrap up and finish, to conclude, and I know that was a lot that we just looked at, but that's why I gave you a paper that you could follow along. To conclude in verses 7 through 10, Satan is thrown into the lake of the fire where the beast and the false prophet are. I, I really don't think that was meant to be sequential. 
I think we're talking about Revelation 19 being parallel with Revelation chapter 20. And so really, Satan was introduced to us first in chapter 12. We saw him introduced to us. And then the beast in, in chapter 13 comes our way. And the false prophet follows shortly after that. Uh, Satan, of course, the great deceiver. And then the, the beast symbolic of uh, anti-Christian government. And the false prophet being symbolic of anti-Christian religion. And, of course, Babylon being symbolic of uh, wickedness in society, especially sexual immorality. That's mentioned many times as we talk about Babylon that way. So I really think they happen at the same time because the beast and false prophet are thrown into this terrible place at the coming of Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 19 again. And um, it says, um, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And then, of course, we see Satan uh, was thrown, it says in chapter 20. Um, and the devil, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, I actually think that we will see these things take place whether we're alive at the coming of the Lord or whether we actually are already uh, in paradise, in heaven and are part of that coming figurative army of the Lord. Armageddon is a battle that's fought without firing a single shot. You know, no bombs, no guns, only one sword figuratively from the mouth of Christ. You know, that, that's what we're dealing with. It, it's the Lord destroying things that we know them as we know them to be today and making all things new. And he'll say that at the end of the book of Revelation. Behold, I make all things new. And as our uh, Brother Rich Barcellus has said in the title of the book that he wrote uh, that it will be better than the beginning. And I thought it was a really good way to put it. A really good way to put it. And so next week, we'll look at the final judgment of all men of all time. We'll go into a number of scriptures there, some of them into even the Old Testament. Um, and not just those destroyed in Armageddon, but the final judgment are all men from the time of Adam till whenever the Lord returns. Okay? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, but it'll be far too late for many. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, whenever we deal with prophecy, we'll admit that we deal with some questions that we simply cannot answer. Because prophecy is best understood once it's been fulfilled. But once it has been fulfilled, it becomes very obvious what you have done and that your eternal plan has worked out exactly the way that you said that it would. So we thank you for that. And by faith, we believe that. And we do look for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And if it be in our lifetime, then we praise you for that. If it be far into the future, then, Lord, we know that we'll still be with you, 
and will be with you until the time comes, and then it'll be a new heaven and a new earth. So these are the blessed promises that we have, promises that you have written down for us and will most surely come to pass in the way that you ordain. Lord, there's a lot of confusion about prophecy. And we don't pretend, I don't pretend to have it all figured out and know everything, Father. But we just pray that you give us faith to believe in the coming of Christ and that there will be a final judgment. And that final judgment, men and women need to be warned of that great final judgment that we look at next week. May Jesus Christ be praised in his name. Amen.